Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan. Fried the Burnout Podcast. Hello, Fried fam. Today. I get to do something that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Those of you who have been around the podcast for the entire four plus years know that I love digging into the research and I want to bring you tools and ideas that are research backed so that I'm not just talking about random things that you're like, maybe that worked for Susan down the street, but that's not on my list today. So today I get to talk to Kristen Holmes, who is the vice president of performance science, principal scientist at WHOOP. Whoop, if you don't know, is a brand that measures bounce back ability. For those of you who have my book is titled The Bounce Back Ability Factor. Basically, Whoop measures bounce back ability. And Kristen also drives thought leadership by engaging with industry leading researchers and partners to better understand individual and team biometric and performance data across high stakes verticals to drive product innovation, strategy, and coaching. She also has a whole host of like other very important things that she's accomplished in her world. So just suffice it to say that she's a high-level athlete. She's incredibly smart. She's never stopped learning, and we should listen to what she has to say. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that validation. I appreciate it. <laughs> so important. So the I want to start with what is WHOOP and what does it do? Let's just start yeah. there. And before I start, I'm going to have to say, listen up, everybody. This is not a paid podcast situation. I invited Kristen on. There are other companies that do similar things, but I chose Whoop because I've been following them the longest, number one. Number two, I liked Kristen's previous interviews with other people. And number three, they're from Boston and I'm a Boston girl. So they won. Now, what is Whoop? What's What does it do? What's the point? Yeah. So WHOOP is a 24-7 physiological monitoring device. And I say 24-7 because you don't actually have to take it off to charge. You can slide a battery pack, which you charge in, you just charge it independently. And then once the battery pack is charged, you can just slide it over the top of your WHOOP strap. It doesn't need to be plugged in. And then just leave it on for an hour or so. It'll be fully charged and only have to charge it every five, six days. So it's got a pretty pretty long battery life, but there's definitely this concept or notion of 24-7. And I think what enables, I think, such a wonderful fidelity and accuracy is the fact that we are collecting a heartbeat 24-7 in that there's no distractions. There's no watch face. So we're not using any of our computational resources to try to, to answer a text message or a phone call or send a text message or an email. So there's really, it's a totally distraction-free device and you go into the app. So all of the data is being collected on the Whoopstrap and it's getting pushed into a mobile application, which you can check whenever you want to. And there we're synthesizing insight around how your body is responding and adapting to stress, which we call recovery. We are giving you an insight into how your body is building cardiovascular load. We call this strain. And we also are measuring and calculating your sleep across various kind of domains of, of sleep. So we're looking at your sleep architecture. We're looking at your sleep consistency. We're looking at your sufficiency. So the time that you're spending in bed. So we really have these three pillars that we're 
totally committed to helping you understand your insight and why we do this so you can have more control over the trajectory of your health and you can stay ahead of your health, right? We talked to Kate before, before coming on just this idea that it's really hard to perceive when you're declining cognitively, physically, and emotionally. Sometimes and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I'm burned out. Right. <laughs> and, and that actually does, it does manifest in your sleep. It does manifest in your recovery. It does mani- manifest in your ability to build load in a functional way. There are signals right prior to that drop off the cliff that if you have these data, you can pay attention to, and, and you can course correct before you get to a point where you're at a point of no return. This is the thing that I love so much. And these things have been out for a few years now, different measures of heart rate variability. And the HeartMath Institute has been doing this for many years, right? And it's something that it's I've talked, I talk about it in my book, which was released years ago. I wrote it in 2018. Awesome. So we it's not that we haven't talked about it around here, but I haven't pushed it for a couple of reasons. One, because I had up until recently a little bit of fear around depending on technology to tell us how we're feeling. Mm. And this, because I do believe that having a higher level of interoception of an ability to read your own body and be in touch with yourself Mm -hmm. is long-term really what you need. You need to be able to notice that you're thirsty and have something to drink. If you can't do that, then we can't keep you stable. And so I was afraid of that interference a little bit. I didn't want to push people towards something that would take them away from what they're feeling. And at the same time, I've been really delineating this difference. I'm one of the only voices in the burnout world that does this, delineating this difference between burnout prevention and burnout recovery. And people, there's a lot of people that are like, I just want to focus on prevention. I just want to focus on prevention. And I keep telling them that it's hard to focus on prevention because of this thing that you just mentioned, right? We decline cognitively and physically at a slow rate, slow enough that we don't necessarily notice. Yeah, it can be slow and insidious. So I think to address the first point, I totally understand. Like I think building that somatic awareness is so important. And when you think about the factors of human performance, it's the internal load, external load and subjective load, right? Like understanding when I was a coach for gosh, 13 years, I was a head coach, right? And I was collecting tons of data, right? So I could make better decisions and keep my athletes healthy and, and be able to understand what the load I was putting on them, like what that was actually doing to them. So I was collecting lots of data, but I always asked them how they felt. And that's so important to stay connected to that. That said, as someone who's very aware of the interference, right? I think for me, when I was coaching, it allowed me to have better conversate, deeper conversations with my athletes. So we could pinpoint that, oh, you know what? It's how I'm training you is what's pushing you into the ground because you know what? You're sleeping really well. You're doing these other things that we know ladder up very directly to performance. So it technology allowed me and, and the data that was coming through those technology allowed me to, I think, treat my athletes more humanely and keep them safe and ha- ask better questions and frankly, just have a, a more better relationship. Because I think sometimes like how we feel might not always correlate with the data. I think that that's what's exciting about technology. And, and I think the science is there to say, hey, you know what? three days before you actually have COVID, whoop can tell. Mm. 
we have a COVID act and that was really important now. And, it, and I think it was important, obviously, when we were trying to self-isolate and not infect other people. So yeah. I think there is an incredible opportunity to have data that helps you understand if you're actually getting sick before you even have any symptoms, right? right. And that's what we're talking about here, right? Yeah. Is this predictive kind of capacity that allows you to course correct yeah. so you don't get to a point where you can't recover or recovery is going to take twice as long, right? You can start to see, oh, wow, you know what? My sleep is really fragmented. I'm spending time in bed, but I'm waking up not quite so refreshed. Oh, I can see that my, my disturbances during sleep went from 10, which is my average to 30. Okay. What am I doing? I can, so instead of getting to a point where I'm totally burnt out because I have gone from 10 to 30, because I have unmanaged stress during the day, or I'm going through relationship issues, things that I maybe have been pushing under the rug and not addressing directly are going to rear its head in a profound and potentially dangerous way. So for me, the science is so good right now that why guess, why guess it like, it's such a like mental, it's such a cognitive burden to try to figure out like what's going on internally sometimes, right? When, yeah. when you have data to support or actually not support how you think you feel, I, I think it just gives you a, a better conversation with yourself, like a more objective one, frankly, and one that allows you to get to the source of the problem a hell of a lot faster than trying to figure it out on your own is my I take. love that. I love that. One of the things that you just mentioned was this sort of these three pillars of internal load, external load, and subjective load. Mm -hmm. I would love for you to break those down for people because my listeners are very in tune with a lot of the stress science, but sometimes mm -hmm. we use language that they're like, wait a second. So can we break that down? What is internal load? What is external load? And what is subjective load? Yeah. And this kind of comes from sports science. Yeah. So internal load is really your heart rate variability, everything that's happening, the load that is that you can express through biomarkers and, and whether and how your body is adapting or, or not adapting is the end goal of having access to those biomarkers. External load is power, force, kind of velocity, like my change of direction, my acceleration, that's external load. And then subjective load, of course, is just how do I feel? And that can be questions like, do you, how much energy do you have today? Did you sleep well? Did you, do you feel optimistic about the future? So those are subjective measures that can give us some insight into how the athlete is feeling in that moment. So if we were going to use this on a, in a non-athlete framework, mm -hmm. then internal load would still be the same thing. We're talking mm -hmm. about measurable shifts in physiological functioning that can let us know how hard the body is working at any given moment in time. Perfectly the external said. load would be more of like how you're responding to your workload. Instead of pivoting your body, you're pivoting your stress somewhere. Would yeah, that, is so that it, um, yeah, exactly. So yeah, so having, so there are lots of technologies out there that kind of measure external load um, object, objectively. Yeah. Catapult comes to mind. That's the technology that I used when I was coaching. And that, and you can use that to see how efficient is the athlete working like from a, like biomech perspective, are they moving in a way that is close to their baseline or, or whatever? Yeah. yeah. And then from there, you can infer their efficiency. You can infer their recovery. You can have some more insights, but that's really just a snapshot of just during the training session. And external load is not something generally we have access to, but I think to your earlier point, feeling 
having that kind of somatic awareness of how your body is in perception, like how your body is operating and moving through space and time is, is an important skill to develop in understanding when it might be declining or you feel like you're not as, I say, twitchy, like when you're just like ready to get up and go. And when you feel like that starts to decline, I think that's an important signal to pay attention to. So I think we can generalize those three in potentially that way. I love it. There are some people that are like, heart rate what? Uh, who? Mm. So can you explain in the most basic terms possible what heart rate variability is and why it would matter to mm. people who are experiencing burnout? Yes, absolutely. So heart rate variability is most simply is the time interval between beats. You want to have the more variability you have between heartbeats, the more able your body is to respond and adapt to external stress. When I am highly recovered and I feel great, I can adapt and respond to my environment in a really functional, proactive, anticipatory way. And that would mean my heart rate variability is probably really high. If I am not able to respond and adapt to my environment in a functional way, that would, we would, you would have a lower heart rate variability. And again, understanding your baseline and then understanding how environmental, sociocultural, like all different kind of factors might actually influence your heart variability is, is really important, like your baseline. But having that baseline, you can see again, how these factors might be influencing the trajectory of your heart variability. It is modifiable. It does go down incrementally with age, but you can, your lifestyle can definitely shift your heart variability to the positive or to the negative. So with folks who are experienced burnout, they are essentially chronically activated, right? Their nervous system is chronically activated. So they've got high sympathetic activation and heart rate variability. While it's a function of the heart, it actually originates in the autonomic nervous system. And you're, I think for folks who are listening, it's so important to understand the autonomic nervous system, especially if they're trying to conquer burnout and prevent burnout. Basically your autonomic nervous system has two branches, your sympathetic and parasympathetic, and they're both competing to send signals to the heart. When you are recovered and managing stress and your lifestyle in a functional way, your heart's going to be more responsive to the to what your nervous system is asking it to do. The less recovered, the more muted that signal is going to be, and the less adaptive you're going to be. And this manifests in all sorts of ways, compassion and empathy and just tolerance, your level of irritability, and then just too high of a, a heart rate. Your heart rate is just coming at a higher pace than it should. You're activated when you actually should be deactivated. So I think, yeah, so that's basically what heart rate variability is. And yeah, we can dig into more how that might manifest. Fried fam, I tell you in nearly every episode that step one of your burnout recovery is blood work. And I know that a lot of you avoid it because it's a pain and because your doctor has told you that everything is quote unquote fine. And they refuse to test all the things that you think you need. What if I told you that you could test what you want, when you want, from your home with just a couple of drops of blood? Cyfox Health allows you to do just that. You can buy tests as one-offs or join a membership. Either way, you can test and track your results to help you make decisions about your burnout recovery journey. Get 10% off any membership, subscription, or one-time test kit right now. 
Go to scifoxhealth.com forward slash fried for your discount. That's S-I-P-H-O-X health.com forward slash fried. I think one of the things that sometimes is confusing for people, and please correct me if I don't have this, if I don't have this right, but one of the things that becomes confusing is that it is really dependent on, like you said, your baseline and where mm. you're going from your baseline today. And there's not necessarily a quote unquote good or mm -hmm. normal heart rate variability. There might be some averages out there, but it's really you versus you, not you versus if when you draw blood, you're going against norms. What is the norm for this? And do you fit into this window of norm? But with heart rate variability, from what I understand, it's you're just getting your measure. That's exactly and, right. So that's is do you is that confusing for people? I think when you, yeah, I think what can be hard is I come onto the platform, let's say I'm 38 years old and my buddy is 38 years old and she's got a way higher HRV and mine is like way lower. We, let's say we just both got onto the Whoop platform. Let's, you can think about there's genetics, which, so her just baseline heart rate variability might be higher than mine. Okay. And then let's say that she also has never drank alcohol and she generally sleeps really well and manages stress really well. That is going to get, she's basically going to be in a way better position than I am. So it's not just my genetics, my heart size, things like that influence heart variability. It's definitely like everything that I've done leading into that moment is going to influence kind of my baseline. How people need to think about it is my baseline is all that matters, right? It okay. doesn't matter who the person left or right of me, what their HRV is totally irrelevant and, and means nothing for me other than maybe at a population level how far off the mark am I actually can be a source of insight, but not something people should stress over. It's like nothing you can do. I can't take away the the fact that for five years I was getting drunk three times a day or three times a, a week. Don't judge me, Kristen. <laughs> I know. I just say like that, that <laughs> would have a huge impact on right. my heart rate variable today if I was doing that five years ago. How we've lived up to the moment really does impact today's baseline. If I'm coming on the platform today, that will impact my my baseline. Yeah. The this idea that the things that I've done I think really matters. And I think there's also, that's talking about things almost as from an adult perspective. Mm. One of the things we talk about a lot on Fried is the fact that when you are a child, if you experience a high number of adverse childhood experiences, there's some sort of trauma background, mm. you have a different brain development. I don't know what happens to heart development. I've never read anything on that. I don't even know if they've done anything on that. Mm -hmm. But it is, I, I my assumption would be, that it's not just everything that you've done up until this point, but everything also that's been done to you. No question about it, but for sure. Yeah. So I think when, and there is literature on heart variability and trauma, early, early age trauma, and I'm, I'm not super well steeped in that literature, but it does exist. And, and heart, heart variability is definitely suppressed in those individuals who experience early trauma. And I think the degree to which that trauma is unmanaged to the degree to which you're not, you haven't gone through a healing process, you are going to be, and I think we this is an obvious statement, less functional, right? Not as capable of adapting. And even if we're like adapting and putting all of our resources to just being functional in our environment, it's going to come at a cost, right? If we, if we haven't gone through that process of healing, right? Like some, it's going to rear its head in some aspect of our life. That's probably undesirable. So 
Yeah. So I think for, in terms of autonomic nervous system health and, and being able to exert some control over your physiology, getting a handle on that unresolved trauma is critical. There's no question about it. And cause, cause folks who, you know, who's, HRV is like steadily declining at a rate that's not, that's greater than what would be expected. Age yeah. Age rate, exactly. Is going to shorten your health span, right? Getting that in check, I think is really important. Yeah. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. And for those of you who are like adverse childhood, what? We have talked about trauma a lot on this podcast. Mm. It is one of my research topics. I mm. will connect another episode. I'll throw the link in the show notes that describes to you all of the different ways that we adapt our coping when we are coming from a more difficult background. And those adaptive coping mechanisms are often things like drinking and mm -hmm. it messes with sleep and it messes yeah. with executive function and it messes with, so it, you lose sometimes the ability to make good decisions for yourself, mm -hmm. um, which would in addition to the trauma, also affect the heart rate variability. Yeah. Right? And, Which is and wild. It is wild. Yeah. I think understanding the reasons why I might not be moving through the world in a way that, you know, feels aligned and yeah. good is important. And, and I think obsessing over kind of heart rate variability numbers is not the point at all. It's just another data point to just understand, all right, where's the place that I need to start here? Yeah. Um, where where can I apply my effort to get myself on a trajectory that gives me a little bit more control over my health? And how can how emotional. can I how can yeah. I apply that effort? And also, how can I see the results of that effort in a way that I can prove to myself? Like quantify. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot, one of the things that you lose is this ability to like self scan, right? That yeah. You, you don't, you can't do it as well as other people. And like we were saying earlier, other people aren't that great at it anyway. So if yeah. people are not great at it anyway, then this could really be something that you could lean on in a big way. So mm -hmm. this will be now in prepping for this conversation and reading into more of the newer research than I read for my book five years ago, this will be the first time. I think some of my podcast listeners will faint when I say this will be the first time that I'll say we might actually be able to work on burnout prevention because as a general rule, mm -hmm. I think burnout prevention is bullshit because mm -hmm. people don't notice until it's too late. And when it's too late, yeah. you need a different set of skills. Burnout yeah. prevention is stress management, but recovery requires getting in touch with the autonomic nervous system requires get it's a completely different ball of wax. There might be some things that overlap. Sure but they require a different approach. It's like taking an athlete and prepping them for a 5K or bringing them back from injury. They're very different analogy. processes, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's important for my listeners to know that this, knowing that the science is going where it's going and that it's getting better mm -hmm. and that there are people like you that are constantly digging into it and constantly trying to make it improve makes me think that we could actually get to a point where we are really and truly doing real burnout prevention. I think so. It's wild. Yeah. It is wild. And I, I think it's really understanding what are the levers that we can control that really mm. ladder up to our psychological functioning and our our physiological health. And I did, a, it's in, you can link to it. It's in, it was published in military medicine in May, but it was basically the, what I was trying to understand the U S army came to us and they were like, we, this is army Alaska. They had the Ellendorf, Ellendorf uh, 
base in, in Anchorage, lots of mental health issues. And mm -hmm. obviously Arctic environment, it, there's so many challenges in Arctic Alaska from just the environment, the harshness, the light. You've got tons of light in the summer, very dark in the winter. So circadian rhythms are generally kind of misaligned, right? And yeah. then you've got modernity where you have access to artificial lights all the time. And that's a whole nother set of problems that we're all facing. But for Army Alaska, like they're really trying to figure out, okay, what might be the the source of, of, mm. of pain. And what we saw in the results is that there was one behavior that really bubbled up as being predictive of, or strongly correlated with psychological functioning. So this is workplace resilience. This is people who feeling like they have more control over their, just more control in their life in general, people who are feeling more positive and a better mood. So the one behavior was sleep-wake time and having mm. consistent sleep-wake time. And we know from other literature that really unstable sleep-wake time is relationship between unstable sleep-wake time and suicide, suicidal ideation, self-harm. So you know, the one kind of behavior that you can pretty much guarantee across the, the board there is that they're going to have really unstable sleep and wake times. That is, it's going to vary a ton from day to day. In terms of kind of thinking, okay, how do we prevent burnout? Number one, try to stabilize when you go to bed and when you wake up. And for shift workers who are probably a huge portion of folks who are in your population, this is obviously a very hard thing to yeah. sort out. But there are like, there is a taxonomy. If you can't stabilize when you go to bed and when you wake up, there are other cues that our circadian rhythm feeds off of, environmental cues that can help offset the fact that you can't go to bed and wake up at similar times. And that is time-restricted eating, for example, like eating what would be your biological day, getting as many of your calories during the biological day as you can. And then at night when you're awake, just concentrating on like high protein source, but really trying to take that burden off your body to try to digest big meals when you shouldn't be eating, right? When your body isn't prepared to metabolize food, right? That creates a ton of stress huge load on your body that that leads to metabolic dysfunction and all sorts of things. There is hope, I think, for mm -hmm. our night shift workers understanding, okay, if I can't do this, what's my next thing? And then just managing stress proactively is so massive for everyone, right? Like negative stress accumulation will rear its head in sleep. It will rear its head in your sleep onset latency. So how quickly you can fall asleep at night. You might be so exhausted that you fall asleep, but you end up with a really fragmented sleep you wake up unrefreshed, unrestored. And a lot of that has to do with kind of the circadian behaviors. So stabilizing when you go to bed, when you wake up, viewing yeah. sunlight as much as possible within 20 minutes of waking up as much during mm -hmm. the day as possible. And then managing pro stress proactively throughout the day. That is building in breath work to break up these patches of stress, minimizing the sedentary behavior right? So getting up and walking around every 30 minutes or so, or just standing up from your computer and just working, standing up, shift your hips a little bit with your feet. These are just little things that can go a long way in terms of preventing, in terms of prevention. All right. So I'm going to recap that everybody. Mm -hmm. So I want you to pay attention because these are things that you can do that are free in your life on a day-to-day -day basis right. that will on a physiological level, improve your resiliency to stress and your recovery. Number one, regulating your sleep cycle as much as possible. So falling asleep around the same time every day, waking up around the same time every day. Obviously, if you can, if you're not a shift worker, if a shift worker, there are other solutions, right? But, mm -hmm. and what I heard you say in another space was to try and keep it within a half hour when you can. And of course, there's going to be some nights that are 
a little different, but if you're looking over the course of a month or two months or three months that you are generally within this sort of half hour range at night and half hour range in the morning is one of the most, I've heard you say it. I don't even know him. I heard your voice a lot over the last few days. I've heard you say this over and over and over again. Let's try and do that. And it will make a huge difference. I don't think I can underscore enough. Like it it bubbles up in every single piece of our research from glucose research to metabolic dysfunction research to the mental health research. We had another paper that looked at, that basically found prior sleep-wave behavior predicted people who predicted mental health during COVID. So the folks who, it was actually a buffer. So it is like, you mentioned the word resilience. Like you want, it's just try to do this behavior as often as humanly possible. And you were literally, your body becomes aligned internally. So like it, like there's less friction to digest your food. There's less friction, your body, less friction, more exercise capacity, more capacity to move. It it impacts every cell tissue organ in your body and is, is such an important element. I just can't, I can't underscore it enough. Stabilizing sleep, wake time. I think making sure what, I think one of the behaviors that's important to recognize in order to facilitate this, it relates to melatonin is that morning light. So oftentimes people don't relate. They're like, oh, I want to, I'm trying to go to bed consistently, but, but I can't fall asleep. And that's to do probably with the fact that they don't, are not seeing light within 20 minutes of waking up, figure out when you want to fall asleep and then back that up or figure out when you want to wake up and then view as much light as possible when, as soon as you wake up, and then you'll basically, your body will naturally fall asleep when it wants to fall asleep. And it will release the melatonin, which is going to be sleepiness. So that kind of process is really important. And the the second piece to that is making sure that you're limiting your light in the lead up to bed. So within a couple hours of bed, dimming your environment and ensuring that you don't have a lot of natural light coming through the retina, which is going to tell your cells, your organs, your body, tissues in your body, that it's time to be alert. It's time to perform when you release cortisol, adrenaline, epinephrine, right? Which are the stress, right? The activation. So you want to try to make sure that's not happening. So the one, the best way to do that is restrict the light and also ensure that your last calorie, the last food that you put in your body is a couple hours before you intend to sleep. This is something that became the morning sunlight, especially became really obvious to me. I heard the Andrew Huberman talks about this a lot in his podcast. He talks about this constantly. Totally. And we started during COVID, we were like, we need a new exercise routine. We need something new to do. We have time to try something. What are we going to do? We joined a rowing club and you Whoa. you almost only ever row in the morning <laughs> at sunlight at dawn. Yeah. That's It only happens at that time. And it completely shifted our, as a whole household, our sleeping patterns, because first of all, you're up early, so you're asleep early. But second of all, we had access to this early morning sunlight most days of the week. And so you fall into that pattern of your eyes are there in dusk and dawn and through this whole pattern. And so we started aiming for getting our dog out at the other end of the day, taking her out around dusk. And it really shifted so much for us. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not a simple thing to get up in the morning and row at Mm -hmm. 530. I'm not saying that's easy. However, having something that made that like you are outside in nature, you are in the light, you have to be looking at the sun or else you won't be able to see where you're going anyway. So having that sort of built into our lives made such a big difference. So that's lever number one is sleep quality. Lever number two, Mm -hmm. you said manage stress. And one of the things you mentioned was breath work. We talk a lot about breathing here and also 
because of the high levels of trauma that are associated with burnout, sometimes breathwork can lead people to panic. Mm. So is there, if, if somebody can't easily use breathwork, is there something else that you guys recommend on a regular basis as an instead? Yeah, I would say the mind body scan. So yoga yeah. nidra yes. yeah. is, is a is a great second. Um my whole entire podcast just went, yeah, we know. Oh dang. Okay. Yeah. That's that's I good. love it. You're giving them, I think. Yeah. That's good. When you think about the taxonomy, like if you yeah. if you can't do a double inhale followed by an extended exhale, which we've shown in research yeah. to be the most efficacious protocol in deactivating the nervous system. So really reducing the heart rate. Yoga Nidra can be really powerful and actually it's been shown to mimic slow sleep. So deep sleep. Mm -hmm. So when looking at brain, the brain during mm -hmm. sleep. So that's like really exciting. Uh, we have, we work with a lot of, we have a, a, an amazing partner in Arena Labs who works with in the healthcare, healthcare space. And, and a lot of those folks are using Whoop and also using their kind of education platform. And one of the things that we see in that population is that just a 10 minute lying on the floor in just random parts of the hospital for 10 minutes is actually really restorative. And I think does mitigate that negative stress accumulation that can happen by just repeated activation. So it's a really solid deactivation technique. I think the other thing that is hard, I think for folks who have experienced a lot of trauma Meditation and mindfulness can be really hard. Yeah. Trying to like will your brain to not feels think impossible. It's yeah. impossible. Yeah. And I, as someone who experienced a lot of trauma as a kid, I really, it, it's taken me a lifetime to really get to a point where I'm like, feel like I actually have control over my attention and my thoughts. A lot of practice. But I think my entry point into meditation was actually through my breath. So mm -hmm. I, I think people understanding being very forgiving of the fact that it's okay if you can't meditate in mind and do mindfulness yoga nidra and i think the physiological side like the slow paced breathing is a wonderful entry point to getting a handle on your thoughts and your attention so yeah i love that so the managing stress portion we have some some breath work ideas you said mm -hmm. the double inhale with a longer exhale is mm -hmm. the one that you've seen to be yep. to have the highest efficacy yep. and then yoga I can nidra which that oh, yeah i love it's please do yeah. So it's the first is going to be like taking as much air as you can. And then you have one an final, extra sip, final, they call it. an extra sip in, and yeah. then an extended. And I almost pretend like I'm crying and that yeah. actually works better for me. Like I just, and yeah. what's awesome. I think the study we did five minutes, but I just don't even think that's necessary. I think 30 seconds to a minute is enough to just tell your body, Hey, it's time to chill. And I, and I, think, I think the message, impact. yeah, I think the message is really Right now, in this very moment, you are safe. Absolutely. Like you're creating safety in, in your body by yeah. deactivating. Yes. yes. Intentionally, like being in, on purpose. Like it's just that control. We know as in terms of our core psychological needs, like yeah. feeling in control and, and safe is like such a core psychological need. And, and this is a way, this is a path to that is being like, I work with, so there's a, is an outfit in, in Worcester. It's women who have experienced sex trafficking yeah. and I can tell you that those women have, don't feel safe, right? A majority yeah. of the time and right. are trying to, trying to find safe places, like little physical kind of safe places, yeah. but feeling safe within their body is mm -hmm. something that we're, that Working I, I kind of work with these women on. Yeah. And a lot of it is that interoception, getting them reconnected yeah. to their body. And it's amazing when we've experienced trauma, how disconnected, and you know better than anyone, how disconnected you get, you become yeah 
from your body. It is like you are operating. It's like you're an ocean away from your body. Like I, and it reconnecting with that gives you so much agency. I see these women just completely transform and just they're feeling like they have something they can control. And and that's always yeah. the, the pitch is, Hey, your breath is always with you. And when shit hits yeah. the fan, like you can always return to that. Like yeah. you can always tell your system, I am safe. And doing that via breath work, I think is just, is really powerful. I agree. So we have levers of sweep quality. I'm not tired at all today. Yep. Sleep consistency, which, <laughs> sleep drives, consistency. Sleep, which drives sleep quality as does yep. the stress medication. Yeah. Yep. And then managing stress. Mm -hmm. And what I just love about this, I want to, all of these things are free. That's right. Democratically available. Everything, yeah. all of these things are free. And the third thing you mentioned as a lever was interrupting a sedentary lifestyle, basically. Those mm -hmm. were not the words you used, but that's basically what you were saying. And this is something that has shifted for me a lot since moving back to the States, because when I was still in Europe, I was a practicing acupuncturist. I'm seeing 40, 50, 60 patients wow. a week. You're so you're, your you're on your feet all day long. And then I, yeah. I came home, I'm a writer and a podcaster and a speaker. So when I'm speaking, I'm up and about all day, but there's not a conference five days a week. There's a conference maybe one day a week, sometimes twice a month. And the rest of the time I'm podcasting and sitting and typing and writing books. I'm not, that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, I can't believe how much my body has changed because of, I think, of course, American quality of food and yeah. also all this sitting. So this just interrupting your sitting, sometimes getting up every 30 minutes is like not do, I'm not going to get up during this hour because yeah. I, <laughs> The camera would be on my chest and that would make for an awkward video, mm -hmm. but so I'm not going to do that right now, but even just interrupt yourself every time you can. I ended up yeah. putting a, a mini trampoline because my office is a clothis. This is a six by six <laughs> office that I'm in. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, the guest room is behind me. No guest needs yeah. an office. This it needs a closet this big. Yeah. So I put a mini trampoline in the guest room. And instead of just standing, I go out and get on the mini trampoline just to like really move things. It, yeah. I literally will jump 30 times and then get off, Amazing. but at least something. Yes. So interrupting this, is there a, an ideal sort of pattern? Like mm. you did mention every half hour, but is there like an optimal sort of numbers of interruptions or time frame for this? Yeah. So definitely the research suggests that interrupting sedentary every 30 minutes is ideal. Yeah, okay. so, yeah. So 30 minutes is the, I guess the, the kind of the gold standard. Yep. And it's interesting. A lot of folks, they'll crush a 10 K from 6 AM to 7 30 and literally sit and on then their sleep ass all for nine hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's not good. And we know from the literature that is, that is actually exercise doesn't offset sedentary behavior. So there is definitely this really important notion that we need to have these little movement like snacks throughout the day. And it's, you don't have to go crazy, but just even I'll just do five squats and a wall sit for 30 seconds. It's just something where I just feel like I'm breaking it up. I think that goes a long way. And I have a standing desk at home and at work. And so just the majority of the time I'll stand in and I have this little, I forget what it's called. It's like a, it's like a board that has mm -hmm. a, like a little kind of ball underneath Like a balance it. board. It's a balance board. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think of the brand. It was so generous fluid board, I think something like that, but that's awesome. Like I actually have to really engage my core, like when I'm standing on it, but just little things like that 
actually go a long way. And, and we know from an all-course mortality standpoint, sedentary behavior is a path to disease and low quality of life. So getting yourself moving is really important. And I think to your point, like to like modern life, modernity makes it hard, right? Like it's yeah. so easy to get food, right? And yeah. this is like from an evolutionary perspective, like this is, we have to fight all the circuitry in our brain that's telling us to go and eat as much food as we can because we don't know when we're getting our next meal. That is not the case. We have to like actually rewire our brain to, to know that, Hey, I'm safe. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to get food when I need to get food. It's okay. I don't need to like eat 3000 calories right now on this one meal. So I think, I think we fight, have to fight that too. And it's even harder for women because yeah. we, generally speaking, when you think about women on the Savannah, right? They were, you're biologically, we are biologically wired to eat as much as we can so we can create a safe space to have a baby, right? Yeah. Because we didn't, they didn't know when they're going to get their next meal, right? So we have to fight all of these, I think, issues related to, yeah. to modernity that I think when we're not aware of what's actually happening, we just get overtaken by this pressure. But I think when we start to understand that oh, okay, I'm going to be able to have my next meal. Like I don't need to like overeat in this particular moment. And we can understand all that. Then I think behavior change becomes a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for women, it's also tough because we do have this caloric shift over the month. Just before our cycles, we need an extra 100 to 300 calories a day, I think is the is the stat. Yeah. I don't yeah. know why I would remember that, but- Yeah, it's like 200 uh, calories. Yeah. Yeah, ish. Mm-hmm. During so- our luteal phase. And so in the second half of our cycle, we're going to need more calories and we're trying to like beat it down. So we're trying to control it almost sometimes too much. And then Mm -hmm. we underdo it at times of our cycle where we might need a little bit more, which then leads to binging because we can't. So exhausting. No, it is. But I think that's, that's where this information is like useful, powerful. Yeah. It's like during your luteal phase. So in the lead up to menses after ovulation, that two week period leading into menses, like you're just, your body just needs. It, it's, it's, it's very, it's a metabolically expensive time and you don't need tons of more calories. It's just like an apple no. and a yogurt more a yeah. day, but, but that's not going to make you gain weight. That yeah. is going to actually help your body not get into a place where it then feels unsafe. I keep using unsafe because I think that's the perfect it, it language is. to help people understand that, Hey, if we're not fueling appropriately during these times, like your body is going to feel it's going to increase your baseline heart rate. You're going to get into a place where you're like releasing adrenaline and cortisol and epinephrine. And you do that month over month. And all of a sudden you get to a place where, oh, wow. Okay. My body is really not responding and adapting to stress at all. And And neither is my brain. My my memory is gone and uh, I have no executive functioning and uh, sleeping. And yeah. yeah, I think understanding the demands of the body during these different phases, the cycle for women is absolutely, absolutely central. And sticking with the safe thing is really important to me because it is the number one rule that we follow all the Mm -hmm. time at Fried. So when we are in a coaching container, F Mm -hmm. stands for facilitate safety. Mm -hmm. We always start with that. We talk about it a lot in podcast episodes. We always talk about it in one-on-one coaching. If we Mm -hmm. cannot on some level encourage your feelings of safety, we are failing. I love that. And this is, it's so important to me and such a thing to to really focus on and something that we don't learn growing up and Mm -hmm. is not talked about in common literature is not just out there. So it's something that I feel like we really have to push. And if we Mm -hmm. can measure 
how safe our bodies feel using whoop and heart rate variability, then holy shit. Yeah. Really? Yeah. We have this insane feature. It's called stress monitor and we're still trying to figure out exactly what it is, but it's basically an algorithm that pulls in heart rate and heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where we did two years of development for this kind of monitor, but it basically helps you understand on a scale of zero to three, how much stress you're, is, you're incurring when you're awake outside of like activity, right? Yeah. So not, we're not talking about when you're exercising, we're talking about in the moments when you're not exercising, what's your stress on a scale of zero to three? And you start to see, wow, when I eat a really crappy meal, not good for me, my stress goes it was really high when I, when I'm having like a really stressful conversation, my stress goes high. When I drink alcohol, my stress goes high. And then you see how your stress, when I'm in that 2.5 range on average throughout the day, my sleep is shit. Yeah. That means I did not create enough moments of safety for my yeah. body when yeah. I was awake. And you know what? That is going to manifest in your sleep every mm-hmm. single time. I I Mm -hmm. see it so clearly in the data. It's just wild. I know for me, if I am not carving out time during the day, I'm an introvert. So I just need a little more alone time and I just know what I need. And if I don't, if I don't create those boundaries for myself, it is going to give me a shitty sleep. And when I get a shitty sleep, I'm not restored for the next day. I'm a lesser version of who I want to be in this world. And so, yeah, for me, that data has been, just so insightful and has really transformed how I think about my day. Which means now I have to get one. I know. Kate, we can facilitate that. <laughs> yeah. No, it just, I think you'd probably be fat as a scientist, you'd be fascinated uh, in a research, someone who does research and yeah, you'd be really fascinated by the data. But I think for me, it's allowed me to almost cut corners around like yeah. understanding what are the behaviors that I need to deploy in order to I I guess be the best version of myself. Like I want to be able to show up mentally, physically, emotionally for my family, for my colleagues. And and what does that require me from a behavior standpoint? I know I need to stabilize my sleep wake time. I know I need probably more time in nature than like the normal human. Like I just, that's where it like really regenerates me. I know that I need a little bit of time to do, you know, my writing and and drawing. Like that's really important. Like I I just know that there's like these non-negotiables that if I'm not building into my life, I see it manifest in my data very clearly across sleep and across domains of recovery. I want everybody to go back to in the in your minds, if you've listened to it, if you haven't, this will be another episode that I link in the show notes. I have to make myself notes for all the things I'm putting in the show notes. I want you to go back to the episode on coping mechanisms and listen to the idea between adaptive and maladaptive maladaptive coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. and understand this sort of extra layer that Kristen is sharing with us today that there's when you're using a maladaptive coping mechanism, it's actually adding stress to your body. I didn't I knew that. And that's what I talked about in the episode. But Thinking about it this way is like when you're feeling like shit and you're like, I'm super overwhelmed. I'm just going to order a pizza. That's making it worse. It, it really is. I, I think, but what's so hard is that having- Sometimes like, have the pizza. I, I'm not saying don't have the for pizza. Sure. For sure. Yeah. To be clear. I'm just yeah. saying, let's be aware. Yeah. I, I think the awareness is key. And, and having some like tools, like in the moment tools yeah. to be able to shift your focus away from that pizza. Why am I eating this? Like, why do I want this? And is it, okay, I'm really hungry or is there something else 
going on that I haven't addressed. And I, yeah. and I think, and I think what's happened in our society is that number one, stress and anxiety are two different things, right? Yeah. And I think drive our behaviors in two different ways. And, and I think understanding that is really fundamental, right? If we want to start to take control of our mental, physical, emotional health, we have to understand how this shows up in our life and be aware of that. So I understand what my action needs to be and where the source of anxiety is and where the source of stress might be. Mm -hmm. So when we think about it from the perspective of, okay, my autonomic, my heart is activated, right? And we we perceive this as anxiousness, right? And oftentimes what people try to do is mute that anxiousness Mm. by eating the pizza, right? Right. By having that glass of wine at the end of the night, as opposed to saying, you know what, like my body's telling me something right now. Mm-hmm. What is this source of stress, of anxiety? Where is the source of anxiety? Maybe it's, I just need to fold the freaking laundry that's like on my bed. Or maybe it's, I, you know what, I need to have that really hard conversation with my spouse. Yeah. Or you know what, like my kid's struggling and I, I don't feel like I have the skills and resources to help them in a way that they need to be helped. Like, where is that source of anxiety? Reaching for the glass of alcohol or eating a, a pie pizza, like that is not going to solve that anxiety. And maybe you decide to go that route anyway, but go in it with an understanding and a consciousness, like a, a level of consciousness that allows you to maybe address it at some point, because it's not going right. to go away. So I think understanding anxiety and stress is more of like the kind of the chronic kind of nature of things that I think is more of less on demand in the way that anxiety is and more of, I need to just create, and I go back to sleep consistency. How do I buffer myself? And how do I deal with that anxiety in a more proactive way is really how I've been managing stress day to day, you know, day after day after day. The less I'm doing the behaviors that give me that stress resilience or that stress tolerance, the less capable I'm going to be managing that anxiety in the moment and making decisions that are adaptive versus maladaptive. Listen, Fried Fam, I am not done with this conversation, but our time (laughs) is done with this conversation. (laughs) I think the most important thing to know is that there are these levers that you can use to increase your stress resilience, sleep consistency, quality, managing stress, and moving more, just literally moving more throughout your day. Basic small things, not necessarily exercise matters, but not for this. I think that's a a critical distinction that you made today. I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing this today. I could ask you questions probably for about eight hours because I just (laughs) want to, I have so many things that I still want to talk to you about, but I am really super grateful for this picture that you just gave us and for letting us know how WHOOP can help people in that. And so I'm just, thank you so much for taking the time and for coming on and for chatting with me. I'm so grateful. Uh, I think what you're doing to contribute to this space is just, it's Herculean. And I thank you for, for having me on and yeah, for the platform to talk through some of these ideas. Of course. All right, Fried Fam, we're wrapping up yeah. another episode. What I want you to think about today is what is the easiest thing that we talked about today that you can implement over the course of the next week? Whatever you choose, whatever it was, make it smaller than you just chose because I know that those of us that burn out, we tend to be high achievers and we tend to always want to do, I'm going to change all of the things at one time. Let's change one thing. I want you to change one thing and make it as small and as easy as possible so that it sticks with you over time. Fried fam, be good to yourselves, please. Until next time.
Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Ain't gonna burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan.